Hi, I want to welcome you to the second day of the conference. Um, just uh, one or two announcements. Um, actually, uh, what I want to do is for the participants, since I've been getting a lot of questions about the volume that's coming out of this conference, let me just lay any fears. You know, the date is still going to be the 1st of July, uh, but I will send the parameters for the writing uh, within a week or so after the conference is over. Uh, you know, things like which footnote system that we prefer, bibliography, I mean, that, that sort of stuff as well. Um, I'm very pleased, actually. Oh, yesterday was wonderful, I thought. Uh, and, you know, I've read the papers for today, uh, and uh, the papers are really wonderful as well. So this is going to be one hell of a volume, I can tell you. Today, what we want to do is get started with uh, the panel on Syria and Iraq. Uh, we have four speakers today. Um, first off is uh, Bassam Haddad. Uh, he is director of the Middle East Studies Program and teaches in the Department of Public and International Affairs at George Mason University. He is the author of Business Networks in Syria, The Political Economy of Authoritarian Resilience. Uh, Lisa Wadeen uh, is the Mary R. Morton Professor of Political Science and co-director of the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory at the University of Chicago. Her publications include Ambiguities of Domination, Politics, Rhetoric, and Symbols in Contemporary Syria, and most recently, Ideology and Humor in Dark, Dark Times, Notes from Syria. Uh, Lindsay Gifford uh, is Assistant Professor in International Studies at the University of San Francisco, where she is currently serving as the Interim Director of Middle East Studies. She holds a PhD in anthropology from Boston University, for which she conducted ethnographic field research in Damascus, uh, and was National Science Foundation Minority Postdoctoral Research Fellow working with refugees uh, in Jordan. And finally, uh, Harith Al-Karawi is a senior fellow at the Central European University and senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, where he leads the Iraq Initiative. Uh, his research focuses on religion-state relations, sectarianism, and identity politics, and informal actors in Iraq and the Middle East. So with that, Bassam. Um, thank you for inviting me. Thanks to um, James for putting this together and everyone who works in front and behind the scenes on these things because I know that is a lot of work and, and a lot of people are not visible to all of us, but thank you all. Uh, I am speaking on Syria. Um, my title is Syria's Uprising and Prospects for Post-War Reconstruction in quotation marks, Unfinished Business and the War Economy. Uh, this will be a different sort of talk uh, than what I usually address on Syria. I am literally incapable of hearing myself say the same things over and over again, especially after the second year where the dynamics uh, changed little and the structure almost remained the same. So I will be venturing into new territory and I will be speaking fast. So if you have coffee or cocaine or anything that will uh, you know, try to keep up, I apologize because there's a lot of material and I'm leaving some material for Q&A. Writing, I'm gonna start about, uh, to talk about the uprisings in general and, go, and then go to some of the missing elements. Writing about the uprisings has long ago gotten into diminishing returns. Preoccupation with meta-narratives and polemics clouded pressing discussion and research, not least because of a tendency to view the Arab uprisings or the Arab Spring as the unit of analysis, and I'm glad we didn't use the Arab Spring here. Furthermore, as successive disappointments set in, many analyses and analysts were geared not to rethink and investigate further by delving deeper into muddy empirical context, rather self-fulfilling prophecies were invoked to explain apparent failures. For most observers, the Arab uprisings simply took a sharp linear and irreversible turn to mayhem as the apparent end game. For cynical observers who were initially struck by an empirical reality that debunked their predispositions, the democratic uprisings in the Arab world were always an anomaly that was confirmed by consequences. For idealists, the uprisings were the true expression of the quest for freedom and dignity that must prevail even in the short term 
regardless of strategies, alliances, and the regional global context. Finally, for self-styled victors, specifically incumbent regimes in war-torn areas such as Syria, the time has come for them, they say or think, to restore the status quo, in quotation marks, to regain what was lost and to forge ahead with reconstruction efforts regardless of continuing conflict and monstrous unfinished business. Unfortunately, this last category is aided by a variety of international actors who are rushing to partake in the monumental and lucrative task of reconstruction, regardless of realities on the ground. The reality, however, is that the uprisings are more complex than all of these four categories. It's also less conclusive, or they are less conclusive. And finally, the uprisings are not over in some sense or in many senses, depending on the case. A good starting point is to think less of the uprisings or the Arab Spring, as some say, as a whole, as the unit. A good starting point is to think less of the Arab uprisings or the Arab Spring as a whole, as the unit of analysis, and consider instead the six individual cases separately as the units of analysis. Despite some commonality, each case involves a different story, society, history, society, state structures, and relations, both internal and external. The trajectory of each case reflects the interaction and synergy among these factors in a rapidly changing regional, uh, changing region and a shifting global context. At least two broader factors impinged on apparent outcomes, and another much less studied factor has been given short shrift. On the one hand, geopolitics penetrated each case in a particular manner that both thwarted expectations and reproduced either the pre-uprising structures or the conflicts deeply embedded beneath their weight. Perhaps with the relative exception of Tunisia, with the relative exception of Tunisia. On the other hand, the uprisings ironically provided an entry point for new totalitarian movements and sentiments in old bottles to be sure that recalibrated the preferences and patterns of coalition formation among powerful local, regional, and international actors. We can crudely call this second factor the ISIS effect, but it's certainly more profound than that. It's not about ISIS, so to speak, or things of the sort. It's about the drivers underneath that keep reproducing similar phenomena across time. The status quo today in each of the cases with the possible exception of Tunisia, certainly reflects the combination of these two factors in relation to local and regional struggles. But in some cases, Syria in particular, though one can argue that Libya and Yemen face a similar predicament, a third factor has played a role in reproducing the conflict, affecting all players involved and creating altogether new ones amid talk of reconstruction and political transitions. And that is, this factor is the war economy. It is significant that the new or the future of the Middle East will in part be shaped by the effects of war economies, particularly those with connections to regional and international or and or international actors and factors. War economies are already in various parts of Syria giving way to reconstruction efforts or occurring simultaneously. The implications of reconstruction as discourse and reality. It seems premature to write about, much less practically embark on, a comprehensive reconstruction plan in Syria amid continuing violence, territorial divisions, and the myriad local and foreign forces that have descended on Syria since 2011. However, such plans, or in fact, actual reconstruction efforts, have commenced courtesy of the Syrian regime and not necessarily in a manner that serves the displaced and dispossessed. The ongoing reconstruction efforts primarily mark an attempt to restore normalcy as well as build a new status quo within a context that reeks of continuing instability and in various areas, utter chaos and destitution. It is symbolic, in all cases, of what Syria and Syrians have been through and how the Syrian regime views the conflict and its role then, now, and in the future. It is perhaps fitting that the regime's dictum that was widely shared has become a self-fulfilled prophecy, both back and forth in both directions. Talking about Syria, regime officials and diehard supporters would say, we built it, we will burn it. 
at the outset. And now it is more like we burned it and we will rebuild it. It will not be that simple. But the Syrian regime, Syrian regime, however, is not alone. A number of countries, multinational organizations, international financial institutions, as well as well-placed individual business moguls have been jockeying for position and lining up to play a role in rebuilding Syria, however, prematurely. I need to take a deep breath because this next sentence is very long and bad. <laughs> These include the World Bank, the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, Russia, Iran, China, the United States, various European countries, and of course, the new and growing dozen or so Syrian business moguls whose riches have, in some cases, dramatically outstripped the prior crop of regime business cronies, with the exception of a small number of individuals, not least Rami Makhlouf, the president, Bash President Bashar's extraordinary business shark. Despite the fact that talk about reconstruction seems neither here nor there for most Syria observers, as well as Syrians themselves who do not seem to be the principal target of these efforts, it is nonetheless indicative of the times in which we live, where business opportunities are the unfortunate cause and consequence of revolt, of disaster, and forged or fake peace. These recurring triumphs of opportunities for capital and investment speaks of processes and structures that seem far more sterile than a brutal regime, than a barbaric jihadist or a sectarian rebel, but are in reality more profoundly destructive as these processes, global, enveloping, and penetrating as they are, constitute the stage on which all these actors perform their obscenities, some always more repugnant than others. I am deliberately not equating between the constant and brutal oppressor here and some of the uh, questionable or repulsive responses of the oppressed. And it's important to deliberate doing this in my view. Keeping all this in mind, that is the fact that there will be winners and uh, that there will be winners and these winners were for the most part always structurally poised to win. Keeping all this in mind, we must therefore see the discourse on reconstruction not simply as a distasteful and logic logically ill-thought Temporary, temporarily uh, and temporarily premature undertaking. It's not just that. Rather, it is but a continuation today of what was described as no ad nauseum by the Assyrian regime as social peace prior to 2011, with an interim period that swallowed 400,000 people and shunned or displaced 11 or 12 million to say nothing of intangible but nonetheless indelible costs, which will now be metamorphosed into investment opportunities. To be sure, the proportional relationship between destruction and death on the one hand and lucrative opportunities on the other is not a premeditated conspiracy, as some on the left allow themselves to posit. There was indeed a revolt in Syria, and it was imminent after decades of repression, and more recently, the past 25 years or so, because the regime has been around for a long time, exploitation and inequity. But this relationship is not a fact that is recognizable only after the fact. The relationship between destruction and opportunity is not something that we discover after the fact. At some point in time, stakeholders recognized that destruction today was itself constitutive of opportunities down the line, a recognition that is not unrelated to the lack of decisiveness that characterized all parties' positions towards ending the war. More specifically, to bring this exploration back to the topic at hand, at some point during the revolt or war, the mechanism that allowed all parties to cope with the war served both to sustain and contain. This mechanism is the war economy connecting local, regional, and global factors in the most seemingly innovative and seemingly benign of ways. The discourse of reconstruction. I will approach this topic a bit technically and politically and less analytically so as not to drown out observable reality altogether. Talk of reconstruction and redevelopment abound and is underway both behind closed doors, in the corridors of power, and among a variety of institutions considered part of the international community. However, reconstruction does not proceed from a clean slate, as is often implied. Discussions of reconstruction amid continuing hostilities and killing complicate matters further. Even during relatively ordinary circumstances, reconstruction must still contend with various legacies, structural and cultural, involving various uh, local and global relations. What does this make of any discussion on prospects of reconstruction, let alone reconciliation or development, which is now all over um, the sphere of the production of knowledge from different quarters? 
Often we must go back to the drawing board to produce realistic assessments or recommendations. This also means going back in history to address legacies that are relevant to the current challenges uh, that, are fa that we face. Admittedly, this requires a lengthy treatment, which I cannot do here. I've done it elsewhere uh, as I'm writing my, my uh, uh, current book on uh, Syria. And it involves an analysis of how the uprising created crisscrossing fault lines around which business people had to maneuver and or perform inside Syria. A quick look back briefly. Different sorts of business people or entrepreneurs reacted differently to the popular uprising in Syria at any given time. I say at any given time because each successive stage or development reset the fault lines and compelled actors to draw lines in the sand in terms of where they stand privately and or publicly. Ultimately, beyond the initial stage when it was not certain that the uprising would pick up momentum, the fault lines became clear, especially uh, the fault lines became clear, especially after summer of 2012, when a meeting of high-level regime officials and security servicemen were killed by a sophisticated bombing as they convened in the heart of Damascus. Henceforth, it became clear who sided with the regime, who defected, and who stayed silent. These decisions were made on a number of personal and other grounds, not only political ones. Among the most dominant fault lines was certainly the extent to which the assets of business people were intertwined with those of the regime, binding their fate to their capital, whether or not their heart or mind leaned in that direction. This criterion was also at work as various cities and towns were destroyed, and with them such potential tangible connections to and intertwining with the regime and intertwining with regime interests. In the end, outside Damascus and the coast, the uh, western coast, most big business and large-scale entrepreneurs either lost much of their wealth or assets, spent a good deal of it supporting the opposition, left the country, or hunkered down while depleting their capital as they corralled their families to safety in the region or beyond. The new crop of business, the new crop of big business, found its birth in the growth and expansion of the war economy and came to replace and surpass in some cases dramatically surpass its predecessors. With a host of changes that characterize the new structure of the national economy itself, as well as new contract or formula between them and the regime. And this is, of course, a whole uh, a set of issues that can be discussed. In the following few minutes, I'd like to put forth some elements of a framework that, help, that would help us ask and potentially answer productive questions. While we cannot cover everything or for all contingencies and at the same time, we cannot be paralyzed by the complexity of the situation, we can start by addressing unavoidable realities related to the war economy. Most importantly, talk of peace, political transition, or even enduring zones of de-escalation that we are witnessing today would have to contend with the new forces and realities produced by the war economy, and it's not a promising picture. War economies both thrive on violent conflict and perpetuate them beyond the issues around which a particular conflict revolved. The case, of Syria is, the case of Syria is both instructive and illuminating. It confirms what we know about how violence propels the war economy and how in turn the war economy serves as an independent variable that prolongs the war. On the other hand, the particulars of the Syrian case illuminate various aspects of the study of a war economy where regional and international involvement is extensive. Wars produce opportunities, and not ones that are necessarily preferred to peacetime opportunities, but they present themselves as a different model or mode of operation under new circumstances. I argue that these new circumstances, however simple or complex, directly affect the nature, duration, and dynamics of wars beyond the causes that ignited conflicts. In Syria, the war economy has benefited various factions in an exponentially rewarding manner, not least in terms of sufficient income to fund the recruitment of fighters, which fuels the ongoing war, that fuels the war economy, and so on. All this has been five minutes? No. I have, okay, I see. <laughs> well. However, not all parties benefited equally, especially in relative, not absolute terms. On the side of the regime, the war economy brought riches 
to paramilitary militias that were impossible for them to obtain otherwise, and thus benefited them more than it benefited the regime in relative terms. Similarly, wealth derived from the war economy benefited the least externally funded rebels more than the rest, creating constant revenue streams that ended up supplanting, uh, supporting all war fa warring factions to a great extent. If you control territory inhabited by communities that need protection and subsistence, you incurred funds in a consistent manner, even if these were nominally besieged areas, so long as the territory is not immediately strategic. Um, in that case, that is, uh, the long-term siege involves the source of trade that benefits both besieged factions and those controlling the area around them. Uh, case in point is the recent bombing, uh, brutal bombing of, of uh, Ruta that produced several hundred deaths uh, is occurring in a situation where uh, the borders of the besieged area are actually operating between regime folks and uh, rebels, and they are both benefiting even from this dramatic and, and brutal situation. The drivers of wealth, and I will try to close with that, uh, within the war economy. A key to understanding current prospects is to address the drivers of wealth in Syria's war economy, which eventually will shape the emerging economy as well as the new private sector and certainly the new dominant business classes, almost regardless of who remains standing. Besides mobster-like activities that proliferate during the early phases of war economies, such as ransom theft of resources or looting, sale of archeological and other artifacts, racketeering, transit fees, and extortion, etc. besides these, the more enduring drivers of new wealth formation usually include the following. Weapons trade, trade and smug smuggling in general within and across territories, and finally, oil production refinement and distribution. Along with the effects of the political and military conflict, war economies produce a number of phenomena that shape or create actors, classes, and potential private sectors. And although the war economy is developed in areas that uh, experienced state collapse, it is also part and parcel of economic activity in areas where the state is also intact, which problematizes the state collapse discussion, just as a shadow economy operates alongside formal economic processes and transactions. In the Syrian case, the effects of the war economy include the following. The war economy produced not chaos, but new rules that require some duration to set in and form new recognizable and intersubjective set of rules that might themselves alter, alter or reorder interests and alliances temporarily or permanently. A lot of this material remains to be determined. War economies flourish in contexts of state collapse, absence or retreat and produce what is called the privatization of violence, engendering particularly distorted forms of the privatization of assets. Therefrom follows a number of effects. New forms of capital and accumula capital accumulation and transactions, new business roles and forms of entrepreneurship along with new kinds of business people altogether, new incentive structures that have more or less confines, more or less confines than pre-war incentive structures depending on at least three factors. The type of commodity discussed, the location, and the relations involved. The war economy reorders what constitutes a lucrative sector or a commodity within that particular duration in ways that actually produce social groups or classes, strata. The war reconceptualizes human capital by substituting the value of certain skills for others, also within that duration. And there are examples and probably extensive sections under each of these. War economies blur the lines between the official or and shadow economies, between formal and informal economies, and between legal and illegal economic activity, which is now all sanctioned in Syria. Ultimately, war economies constitute a break from certain social stigmas and legal recourse in the pursuit of, uh, the pursuit, uh, of capital. In other words, they recreate the conditions of primitive accumulation, except they do so in more intensive ways where long periods of time can be collapsed into relatively much shorter ones in actually producing capital and social groups. We should not be dissuaded or unduly turned off by the complexity and data that might be produced here and elsewhere regarding the war economy. In the end, markets have their own way of bringing various pieces together in a manner that is not too unpredictable if, as usual, mostly unfair and incommensurate with various forms of merit. Now, I, I'm closing with uh, uh, closing comments. I'm skipping the discussion of um, a framework to actually uh, understand what is happening on the ground in Syria, although I know that we'll probably discuss this more than other things during the Q&A. Uh, 
uh, in the end, um, I'm jumping way down. Uh, the political terrain is not yet ripe for a serious and near comprehensive plan for anything sounding like reconstruction. The existence of multiple authorities, at least four or five ones across Syria, is not a simple detail. It prevents the reemergence of a functional and somewhat independent national economy. The new business class is so organically intertwined with the regime, and it will take quite a long time for it to begin to see signs of divergence between its own interests and the regime's. In a sense, they will both weaken each other but survive at the expense of average Syrians, which is the modus operandi in Syria. Prescriptions such as the ones we see floating everywhere are addressing a moving target and are going to descend into ad hocism at best, preventing a credible reconstruction plan when the time comes that does more, that does more than satisfy narrow regime concerns. The picture is relatively grim, I'm very sorry again especially if you consider that the existing alternative to regime domination is not exactly a cup of tea, mostly because this alternative also does not represent the interest of most Syrians. Moreover, the implications for Syria do not depart fundamentally from the implications for the region or the combination of several other countries in which a war economy has set in, more or less, including in whole or in part Libya, Yemen, and Iraq. In the end, there will be a profound need for capital, and that will repeat in every, in even more desperate ways, the regime's efforts at compromising everything to stay afloat. Thank you. Sorry. Good morning, everyone. I'm absolutely dazzled to be here in this room with all of you. The aim of this conference is to understand the new Middle East. As an anthropologist, I take this prompt as an opportunity to ask Syrians in the diaspora how they understand what's taking place in their country, how they're involved in the struggle or not, and what they expect the future of Syria will hold. The data analyzed here is largely a reflection on a series of phone interviews with first-generation members of the Syrian diaspora. I also draw from intermittent field research over the past decade in Syria, the Middle East, Europe, and the US. I've been able to follow some of these individuals longitudinally from their lives in Syria, through their migration experiences, and eventually finding their place in the Syrian diaspora. All respondents were born in Syria and migrated within the past 20 years, most within five to 10. Some might be viewed as activists for their work before and during the conflict, others as regular people whose lives were indelibly marked by a complex international war. They include human rights and AIDS worker, aid workers and volunteers, a geospatial analyst, a shopkeeper, a barber, a mechanic. I explore the ways that members of the diaspora frame their articulations on the war, the role of the diaspora and the international community in the crisis, and their expectations for the future of their homeland as agents of diasporic imagination from Sockfeld. What emerges is a pattern of early engagement with the war effort, followed by various processes of physical, intellectual, and emotional distanciation, setting the stage to argue for greater international engagement and responsibility in resolving the conflict, and eventually post-conflict rebuilding, while also expressing a deep mistrust in the international system and its involvement in the war. Respondents express a personal need to turn away from the brutality of the conflict and focus on their immediate surroundings and needs in the diaspora. Giddens writes of time-space distanciation, or rather condensation as the condition of modernity. The personal imprint of globalization is demonstrated in Syrian diasporic actors' behaviors and perceptions regarding the war, moving from condensed in time and space to greater physical, intellectual, and emotional distance. Transnational social relations metaphorically or perhaps physically stretched over time and space, especially in conflict situations, may reach their limits and release tension by pulling back to more immediate surroundings. When the uprising broke out, members of the diaspora began to engage in the process of reimagining the future of Syria alongside those still living in the country. Of course, for some, this meant supporting the Assad regime and the status quo. But for others who had left relatively recently to avoid military service, who were members of opposition parties or supporters of democratic reforms, or who had experienced state violence or direct oppression by the regime, the uprisings offered an opportunity to effect change in the homeland that directly spoke to their reasons for migrating. Ashraf, who moved to Britain to pursue higher education and avoid military service, had gained years of experience in the nonprofit sector. When the war started, he quit his job and took on a new humanitarian position with a major transnational NGO that would take him back to Syria. He says, I was running the mission, but when I got there, I found everything was corrupt. They had so much money. 
getting one million euro per year in their accounts. They would do things like inflate the price of drugs. And I would visit the offices. And of 15 or 20 staff members, only one or two would show up each day. And they all have the same last name. I don't know what my predecessor was thinking, hiring people all from the same family. So when I realized the whole thing was corrupt, I shut it down. My driver, he was an intelligence officer, I told him to take me to the airport. Then they arrested me. In another example, Rafi had met an Italian student about a decade ago while he was studying political economy at university. He moved to Italy with her and they married, but when the uprisings broke out, Rafi felt the need to work directly on the struggle in Syria. He had been a critic of the regime and its security apparatus, and his father had spent much of his childhood on the run for opposition political activities. Rafi joined the staff of a major international aid organization and moved to Turkey. Eventually, due to distance and life circumstances, he and his wife divorced. The majority of the war years, he helped run a humanitarian unit focused on northern Syria from across the border in eastern Turkey. I am also reminded and want to memorialize the work of my friend Tarek, who had moved to Germany to escape Syrian government oppression and violence. As a member of an opposition party, he had been detained multiple times and tortured prior to the war. He worked as a freelance journalist and filmmaker in Syria and continued to pursue this work in Germany. When the war broke out, he was active in protest and opposition mobilization. He returned to Syria to film the Battle of Aleppo, using his skills to help document the violence taking place. But as he was filming, he was shot by a sniper, recording the moment when he was struck and his attempt to escape the gunfire and retreat inside the building with the camera shaking on his shoulder. The visceral mortal fear in his voice as he stumbled down the stairs dying will always haunt me. Stories like these serve as a warning to members of the diaspora who would dare to return to engage directly in the struggle for the new Syria. Through the years of the war, members of the diaspora have often gone through a process of personal and intellectual distanciation from the conflict. Although some, of course, remain directly involved in the struggle for Syria, the millions of displaced around the world are an expression of this process writ large through geographic space. Early engagement with the crisis in Syria has often understandably given way to fatigue. Small and large-scale efforts to supply aid from the diaspora have faced political, economic, and military barriers. Experience with these efforts has generated new understandings of the war economy, which became a major pillar underpinning the intractability of the Syrian war. As trusted connections in Syria are killed or disappeared, it becomes ever more difficult to establish new networks in the country. Imad relays his experience from Turkey. Three years ago, I stopped sending money. I had a friend who I would send to, but he was killed, so I just stopped. Honestly, I think it's too late now. Nothing can be done. When there is peace, then we can do something. We tried to send stuff to Homs, like for babies, blankets, and baby's milk, but there was a corrupt officer, a regime officer, who said, I can let you go in with weapons, but you cannot take in any medications or baby's milk. This was a very strict order from high up. They want people to fight and to die. After being released from prison, Ashraf has begun a new initiative to engage with the crisis from a more distant and hopefully safer position. He says, so I'm starting a new NGO, Human Rights Program, to monitor violations. The role of the diaspora, number one, is to raise awareness, and they give money to the needy in Syria. I try to help one case per month. You can never completely trust the stories, even if they come to you from a friend. Another friend, he's somewhat wealthy, he has several businesses. He started an NGO for people who lost their limbs in Syria. 90% of people rely on their family for money. There are ways to get money into the country. There are warlords who move money to besieged areas. You'll lose 20% because there are different warlords and they make a lot of money. That's how they make a living now. Some are with the regime and some are not. Rebels, you could say. Many young professionals in the diaspora felt the need to find a way to support the struggle in Syria using their skills. The many initiatives supported by doctors and medical professionals of Syrian or Arab descent are a well-known example. Awad provides another example from Germany where he moved in the late 2000s. He works in information technology and used his computer skills in his free time to initiate an open source archive that collects amateur video clips of potential human rights violations in Syria in the hopes that one day this resource will help to serve as documentary evidence for the prosecution of war crimes. Members of the diaspora express a process of intellectual distanciation from the conflict in their efforts to try to make sense of the powerful interests behind it. The economic dynamics generated by the war, both domestic and international, are posited as a main factor in the intractable nature of the conflict through the complex web of ties that would need to be disentangled for de-escalation to occur. 
Rafi speculates that the state will be able to use the mass population displacement generated by the conflict to engage in a systematic land and wealth grab that will eventually help to reconsolidate power in the Assad regime. He had been working in Turkey during the conflict years, but is now relocating to Germany. His nuclear family resettled in the Netherlands. My family still has land, but I can't register any of it to my name. Pretty soon, the government will start confiscating all the land of the families who have fled. They'll make a law that if you're absent, you forfeit your land. Ashraf goes even further to explore the international financial interests of global capital and labor markets vis-a-vis -vis the Syrian conflict. He describes a complex dynamic in which regional state actors and transnational corporations benefit from the vulnerable labor force that is generated by the conflict. In this way, Syrian refugees become embedded in regional and global political economies of capital accumulation and consumption. He says, they're abused. In Turkey, there are sweatshops filled with miners, most of them Syrian, and they produce clothes for international brands like Zara, which some of us might be wearing. The Turkish economy is booming. There's a lot of money being made, but they're blaming Syrians for being a burden. It's the same in Lebanon and Jordan, even in Saudi. They say Syrians gain so much benefits, free schooling and so on, but in fact, it is the Syrians who are paying. They have to pay large sums of money for their residency. I know someone who moved his factories to Lebanon for the same reason, so you can't say Syrians don't contribute. The mosaic of ethnicity, sect, religion, and class that constitutes Syrian society has been dramatically changed by the conflict. Syrians view themselves as a diverse population that includes various religious and ethnic communities. The view from the diaspora posits a distancing between what they believe to be authentic Syrian demographics and the changes that have taken place due to the war. Rafi argues, what's really going on is a huge demographic change. They tried to divide us in the 20th century, and they did. There was an Alawi state for a while, but the reality is that we are mixed. Sunnis are being pushed out, and Alawi and Shi'is are left. The Kurds have also participated in that process. It'll be 20 years before an Alawi can go to Idlib or Deir zor The minority are with Assad, mostly. It's really sad. Of course, not everyone agrees with his generalizations regarding minority allegiance, but there is evidence that campaigns of ethnic cleansing have been carried out by various parties to the conflict. Hamid from Jisr al-Shagur in Idlib uh, argues that it will take significant work to rebuild trust and dismantle hatreds that have been built up by witnessing atrocities in war, especially across sectarian lines. They, the Alawis, saw something ugly from them, killings and attacks. Sunnis saw something from them too, not, not pretty, muhalu and there's hatred. They died, the country's gone, it's war. The Sunni have a hundred reasons and the Alawi, same thing. Sunnis are the reason. There is hatred that will not go away. Ashraf Arsal argues that a collective Syrian national identity has been lost with communitarian identities rising to fill the void. He also notes that communalism and xenophobia may be intensified for those monitoring the conflict from the diaspora. There's been a loss of identity. People don't believe in Syria. They retreat to racial relationships, tribe, religion, and outside Syria, the news is amplified. Online, you can utter racist comments, hate speech, but not when you meet someone in person. For Imad, the various strategic positions of different sectarian communities have further solidified the divisions in Syrian society. Justice is to be together again. Christian, Sunni, Shia, Alawi, whatever. But even if Bashar goes, we're going to keep fighting. The long-lasting nature of the war, its seeming intractability, and the perceived futility of Syrian diasporic efforts to further the struggle in Syria have understandably led to fatigue, loss of hope, and pessimism for the near future. More strikingly, personal values and strongly held conceptions of self have been deeply undercut by the effects of the war in a diasporic discombobulation. Honestly, there's no power in this world that can fix anything in Syria anymore, says Rafi, an ardent atheist raised in a communist family. Imad, a non-practicing Muslim merchant, also looks to supernatural intervention to resolve the conflict. I mean, I've thought of all logical possibilities, and I couldn't see any. At this point, I think it has to be something in religion, like a miracle or something. Man cannot fix it anymore. Although he's a human rights activist and democracy activist, Ashraf now sees value in a system that he struggled against and escaped. The conflict has turned his worldview upside down. I was frustrated with the people. I thought they were scared. They were cowards for not standing up to the government. Now I realize they were right. I was wrong, because look what has happened. We need dictatorship. We can't build democracy in a failed state. We need a dictatorship with a slow transition to democracy. The Syrian conflict is a gray zone that calls into question deeply held values and conceptions of self and moral personhood. Personal or intellectual conflicts become irrelevant in the gray zone. Whatever it takes to end the violence, even when that runs contrary to your own deeply held sense of self and ethics, is now desirable. 
While Syrians inside experience their own gray zone of survival, those in the diaspora experience a different kind of moral ambiguity, one that does not necessarily hinge on life and death, but what they would be willing to compromise in order to achieve a solution. Despite the international discourse that the war in Syria is coming to a close, members of the Syrian diaspora and us in this room vehemently disagree. Syrian observers from the diaspora do not perceive that the time for reconstruction is anywhere near, nor do they think that reconstruction is incumbent upon them with all of the international players involved in the war. Even if the diaspora were to play a role in reconstruction, some rather expect that the country will be sold away by contracts to the regime's domestic and international allies. Imad says, I think it'll be six to seven years longer. The regime is weak. You know Daraya, it's a small town. It took them two years to take that small area. And there are Iraqis, Shi'i troops, Russia, which has a long experience with war. Rafi, it makes me so angry when journalists go to nightclubs and say life is coming back. Bullshit, those were always there. Raqqa is wiped out. I was talking to a man in Raqqa and he was asking if they should just destroy the city and build a new one. Probably 50% of the heritage is gone. People are selling it. The diaspora doesn't want to come back. They're rebuilding their life abroad, trying to integrate where they are. There's no country after Assad. Maybe in the fourth or fifth step, the diaspora will get involved, but the first step is security. No one can do anything until then. Ashraf, rebuilding Syria is not for me. I feel like the corporations who took part in the war will, like there's a major construction project in Damascus led by China and Iran. Those who participated in the war will reap the rewards with contracts. Inspired by the title of this conference, I asked my interlocutors what they thought of when they think of the phrase, the new Syria, Surya Jadida. The responses I received were some of the most impassioned in our conversations. Within the idea of the new Syria, much of the anger, despair, fear, and uncertainty generated during the conflict coalesce. The concept of the new Syria also points to the radical changes that have taken place in Syrian society since the start of the war into a new entity that is for members of the diaspora nearly unrecognizable. The new Syria is not Syria, it's something else, but it's not Syria. You can't say Syria without Syrians. More than half the country is gone and foreigners are in charge of the country. Rafi, there's no new Syria. It's not one country anymore. The media is saying that the war is finishing, but this is not true. Syria is divided, it's occupied, there is mass depression, it's disgusting. There's no plan to heal. You allow a criminal to kill half a million people, the UN even stopped counting. You have a generation without education. You have hundreds of thousands in jail without daring to ask where they are. Because this was allowed, Assad will be more horrible. He gave citizenship to Afghans, Iranians, Lebanese militias. What will he do with the militias after? How will he control them? The Kurds will separate, and why not? Why should they live under a fascist state? Maybe 25 years from now, we'll deal with the trauma of these seven years. We could be like Tunisia if the world wanted that. But there is a phrase in Syria, if there are so many cooks in the kitchen, the food will burn. The opposition has lost and there are so many involved. In Germany, the world had an interest to reconstruct the country, not in Syria, and Hitler was dead. In Syria, Hitler won, he's still alive. Ashraf, it's a hellish place, totally effed up. New doesn't mean good. In the near future, Assad will expand his territory and he will kill Syrians as he does it. There's the challenge of radicalism. A lot of men have had a tough experience in the war and they will carry that with them. Plus there will be huge numbers of Syrians who are disabled, they will not be able to work and will be a burden on the economy and there will be sanctions, long-term sanctions for decades. The international community has allowed Assad to win but the sanctions will punish the average Syrian. Members of the diaspora are focused on making the case for international engagement and de-escalating the conflict and resolving the crisis, including the question of what will happen to Bashar. Although this may seem obvious in an international war with state and non-state actors involved, members of the diaspora feel that the international element is often forgotten abroad or deliberately downplayed. Syrians don't generally use the term civil war as it has been used in the international English language media. At the same time, there's a deep mistrust of the international system to act in the interest of justice. International actors have helped to greatly increase the violence of the war and to ensure its durability so the community cannot be entrusted to help resolve the crisis, the international community, even as they are needed to negotiate. With Assad and his allies holding the upper hand in the military and territorial battle, the dangers of the status quo loom large. The US, Russia, Europe, and Iran have the responsibility to rebuild Syria, says Rafi. The main thing they can do is apologize. I got into an argument with someone at the US Department of State. He said, it's you guys killing each other, so it's our responsibility to stop it. But it's not. It's you guys preparing the ground for us to kill each other. 
I think he, Bashar, should be executed, not prosecuted. He's a puppet. There's no regime anymore. He can be pushed around. They're just selling the country piece by piece. But Assad will not go away. They want the intelligence functioning. Ashraf, even though Assad is winning, there's no international acknowledgement of the regime. I don't want him to be prosecuted if it's done just to divide the country, Bashar. If he's prosecuted for justice, then sure, but I don't think that will happen. I've lost all trust in the system. I don't care about his future or his destiny. All I want is for Syria to be united and to stop killing, not dying anymore, to be able to return, rebuild, and to have a leader who suits Syria. Justice means Assad in prison and to have a proper leader elected or under international monitoring. I don't believe in prosecution of war criminals. I believe in negotiation to rebuild the infrastructure and especially the military so that they will fight for Syrians, not fight Syrians. And diasporic integration. The final stage of diasporic distanciation from the conflict is to turn one's, one's focus toward local integration. I'm concluding here. After engaging with the struggle in Syria, stepping back to analyze the economic and political forces behind the conflict and losing local contacts in the country, now it's time for some members of the diaspora to avoid the war, heal themselves, and think about the present where they now reside. Unfortunately for many Syrians in Europe, the country of asylum is not necessarily a panacea, as Rafiq describes for his younger brother who recently committed suicide. For others, economic struggles can occupy the mind with immediate basic needs so that war imagery is no longer chronically pervasive. Rafiq says there's still opposition, but they're not working on anything political now. Now it's just how can you eat, feed the children? In Europe, they're worried about integrating to not be labeled Syrian refugee. The rest are focused on studying or they turn to drugs, alcohol, the black stuff. People are worried about finding a job and there's no strategy, no vision. Look at the Syrians in Europe. They're depressed, they have no education. I will just work on healing myself, my brother issues, maybe get a master's. I just want to not care for a day or a week about everything that's going on. Are you mad? I've been in Turkey for five years. I can't just take charity from a government. I like to work for a living. We tried to establish something for Syrians here in Istanbul, like so that we could hold our ceremonies together, you know, like weddings or funerals, but we couldn't find a place. But we're two million people here. So hopefully we'll find something and it will work out. I spent one and a half to two years thinking about it, so now I don't. I had to throw part of it away to burn some memories. I lost part of my life. I used to love Syria. I went everywhere, places even Syrians haven't heard of, but I'm really pleased with myself at where I am. I'm alive, I can make a living. Ashraf, when people are inside, they're traumatized. They don't realize it, but the traumatization manifests when they get outside. In addition to all the videos of massacres, they're stressed, they have burdens, they have to feed their family in Syria. They have a lot of economic pressure. People in Syria are 90% dependent on income from abroad, so they want to avoid the news on Syria. You start to shut off. You're excited at the beginning with the protests, you think that things can change, but then you don't want to be part of it anymore to hear about it. This is for the absolute majority, but there are still so many who are engaged, but I don't find any benefit from it. Hamid uh, from Saudi, we can't help with money or anything. The most important thing is to live. You have children, rent, you can't think about anything worse. You can't watch the news. It hurts your head. You get upset for your country. Your country is gone. Near the end of his interview, Hamid spent several minutes worrying about the price of gas in Saudi, paying for his car needs and necessary paperwork to stay in the country, trying to find enough work to make ends meet. Turning to a focus on the present is a coping mechanism to deal with the traumas of war and displacement. While the world may be weary of the Syrian conflict, Syrians in the diaspora are looking for alternatives for their lives, something to block out the fog of war. Transnational ties have been stretched to capacity and are coming to rest in displacement. Thank you. I don't know if good morning is the right word to start after this presentation. Uh, since this panel is about Syria and Iraq, I, I thought uh, to start with what I think is the common element uh, in the two cases, which is the decline of state authority. Uh, the failure of the state to meet, to meet the demands of, the growing demands of its population, uh, whether those demands are material or symbolic or demands for social order. In both countries, the state lost the capability to carry on some of its basic functions and to monopolize legitimate violence, which produced power vacuums that prompted organized groups and entities that possess some material and symbolic resources to seek to fill these vacuums. 
We saw an upsurge in local militias and transnational paramilitaries that contested and sometimes shared with the state the use of violence. We also saw the rise of other non-state actors, including religious organizations, organized criminal groups, informal business networks, and tribal or clan-based groups. My current research focuses on the transformations in the relationship between the state and religious organizations in Iraq with a special interest in the Shia clerical authority. But in my paper today, I would like to speak more generally about non-state actors and their diverse modes of relating to or replacing the state. And I will mention some examples from my current research. I'm particularly interested in the understanding the new configurations of relations between state and non-state actors and in linking them to the broader dynamics of state reformation, especially configurations that are challenging the conventional dichotomy between state and non-state actors, or as some call them, the hybrid actors. This devolution in state authority was not only the outcome of events such as the US occupation of Iraq or the Arab uprising, as several speakers noted yesterday. It can be linked to the rise of the neoliberal order and the post-Cold War upsurge of identity politics and the ideology of particularity and inclusiveness often conferred in culturalist terms. The notion of Iraq as culturally divided society became more prominent in this context, and with that the problematizing of the state and its role, because in this line of thinking, it was seen as a tool to impose the dominance of one cultural group over others. This paradigm obviously departed from the uh, mid 20th century paradigm that was dominant in the Arab republics, which consider the state the agent of social change that seeks to modernize and develop society, rather than to represent what was viewed as pre-modern cultures. The post-Cold War paradigm as, and here I'm quoting Aziz al-Adma, has in effect produced a different type of authoritarianism and a neo-patrimonialism which was exercised in the name of religions, sects, and tribes." End of quote. In this context, the partial or total collapse of the state, especially its failure to monopolize the legitimate violence, and the outsourcing of this function to other actors, foreign and local, have actually generated unprecedented levels of disintegration. This disintegration led to the emergence of social groups, cultural orientations, and political ideologies that were oppressed and concealed by the formal powerful and authoritarian state. They gained a new life and visibility in the public sphere and in the new configurations of authority. For example, in the days following the US occupation of Iraq, and the fall of the Ba'athi government. The figure of Saddam Hussein, which was dominant in the public space, quickly disappeared and was replaced with new figures, often religious clerics or subcultural icons. This space became increasingly fragmented, reflecting, reflecting the rise of religious and sectarian narratives that competed to occupy it. We saw the manifestations of this in the emergence of the Mahdi army and the religious courts that the Sadrist movement established in Sadr city and other strongholds in the early months after the occupation. Also, in the eventual unveiling of Salafi religious networks in some Sunni urban centers that offered an alternative moral code to govern social relations and adopted a new project of indoctrination and social engineering. Following that, the rise of Sunni jihadi groups 
combining the transnational network and ideology with a vindictive sectarian discourse. These all were manifestations of the collapse of the old socio-political order and of processes to reshape the new systems of authority. I believe that these processes cannot be captured in the technical language of state building, which mainly focuses on, in, on formal institutions and tend to ignore informal actors and the emerging hybridity from the new configurations of authority. Today, Iraq has all institutions that are common in modern democracies. The parliament, the cabinet, federal court, the regional and provincial governments. Nevertheless, these institutions do not possess all political authority. There are parallel informal systems of authority that sometimes surpass the formal institutions and often infiltrate them. Let's think of the authority of Sistani, the Grand Shia cleric, and I will come to that later. Or let's think of Mas'ud Barazani's authority. Today he has no official position, but a few will doubt that he has the ultimate power in the areas controlled by his party, mainly Erbil and Duhok. In fact, just recently, a leader in the other influential Kurdish party, the PUK, which is controlled by the Tal Talibani family, gave a very telling statement when he was asked about his party's options if they lost the elections. He said, votes do not matter. We have the Peshmerga, the party militia. We have the power on the ground, and thus what matters. Nevertheless, in Iraq, the state still matters. None of the, of the informal actors can actually ignore the state completely, simply because the state still controls the oil rent, which represent at least 90% of the governmental budget and 65% of the GDP. This means that infiltrating the state would provide these actors with the needed access to its resources which is why most of them are, in fact, hybrid actors who are part of the state but operate outside it and sometimes against it. Other forms of this hybridity were represented by the so-called awakening groups consisting of tribal and local fighters that were subcontracted by the Iraqi government and the U.S. Army in order to face the jihadi radical groups in the Sunni areas. This arrangement to outsource the exercising of legitimate violence took a more complex form recently with the Shia paramilitary groups, so-called popular mobilization forces, that fought against ISIS. Unlike the previous arrangement, which was based on the subcontracting of the tribal fighters in which the state was able to stop or abandon as it did under the rule of Nur al-Maliki, the partnership with the Shia paramilitary groups produced a more complex relationship. These paramilitaries are neither formal actors nor informal. They work with and separately from the state at the same time. It is worth noting here that the largest of these paramilitaries, better organization, is also a political party that controls the Ministry of Interior and its half a million men. The same applies to the Kurdish Peshmerga that are legally recognized as formal security forces, but they operate practically as party militias. They receive state salaries, but often, allow, uh, uh, often follow the orders of their factional leaders. Another example was the topic of a paper I published recently on the transformation of the relationship between Shia clerical authority, often called religious marja'iyya, and the state in Iraq. This relationship was his historically characterized by hostility and mutual suspicion. But after 2003, it shifted into one of cooperation, whereby the marja'iyya emerged as highly regarded source of political power and legitimation. We saw this, for example, in the speech of the Prime Minister Haider Abadi, in which he declared the final victory against ISIS. He started by congratulating and thanking the Grand Marja, 
ILC staining. Evidently, this transformation can be attributed to the rise of Shia Islamists as the dominant group in the state after the fall of Sunni Arab nationalists. But it's not only that. It too embodies the new configurations of authority in the post-Ba'athi context, where the weak state had to share power with non-state actors and sometimes to derive legitimacy from them. The Shia Marja al-Sistani emerged as an extra-constitutional force referred to by politicians, visited by heads of state and international visitors, and sought after in the times of political crisis. When the army collapsed after ISIS attack on Mosul in June 2014, it was Sistani's fatwa calling on civilians to join the fight against ISIS that, that is today seen by many as a turning point in that conflict. In fact, the clerical authority, the Marja'iyya, began to gain a formal status. The laws of Shia endowments and religious sites have recognized the Grand Marja as an entity that the state shall consult in appointing official religious administrators and in the general management of the Shia religious field. I call this the formalization of Marja'iyya, a process whereby the info this informal actor gains a formal and legal recognition as a specific organism with specific functions, although continue continue to preserve its informal character and structure. Those religious sites, uh, the call, uh, they are called Atabat, also reflected the new hybridity. Beside their religious functions, they became platforms used to deliver the public and political statements of the Marja'iyya. They also became economic factor, uh, actors, investing in mundane projects such as food production, medical and educational services, militia funding, and even contracting foreign companies to build a new airports. So, in an attempt to place these examples in a general scheme, one can argue that the conditions of state disintegration in Iraq, as elsewhere, created demands for social order, and once the state failed to satisfy this demand, new actors, local, subnational, transnational, or even a combination of these emerged to do so, often combining violent means with ideological claims. And here I want to argue against the essentialist interpretations that characterize this as a revival or a continuity of ancient identities and timeless cleavage, and instead view them as a reconstruction of these identities to serve new purposes and different situations. Of course, these processes reshape social collectivities, identities and boundaries between groups, which in the absence of hegemonic state power resulted in antagonistic narratives competing to define political community and ultimately national identity. In this respect, the sectarianization process in Iraq was one aiming to redraw social boundaries and construct the sects as political communities that compete, negotiate, and be represented in the state. It is important to view those rapid changes, conflicts, and acts of violence as part of the broader dynamic of reconfiguration. This is a process in which the state engaged in different ways and degrees with informal actors, <coughs> fighting some and allying with others, co-opting some and being itself co-opted by others. ISIS represented a challenge to the Iraqi state, but it was also an attempt to replace this state with an alternative concept of nationhood, one based on religious transnational solidarity. In turn, the military defeat of ISIS was partly a reassertion of the Iraqi state and partly the affirmation of the emerging configurations of power relations, which my colleague Fanar Haddad called Shia-centric state building. Now, with the new configurations of authority emerging, especially as the most radical challenges to the survival of the Iraqi state are weakened, we are likely to see more aggressive attempts to assert <coughs> state authority. The fact that Iraq is a rentier state that derives most of 
uh, revenue from oil exportation might reinforce the centralist tendencies of state elite. Indeed, this was to some extent the case during Nouri Maliki's second term in office as the prime minister. The central management of oil resources tends to strengthen centripetal forces vis-a-vis -vis centrifugal forces. At the same time, the reassertion of state authority and the redrawing of boundaries with non-state actors will also depend on several factors such as the geopolitical competition between Iran and the United States and its allies, the price of oil and other macro socioeconomic challenges such as the demographic inflation, the rising unemployment, the water crisis and climate change which is expected to be a new source of instability in Iraq. One important factor will be the ability of non-state actors to further infiltrate state institutions in order to extract resources and to keep the state weak from within so the need for their presence continues to exist, especially in the system of fiefdoms that was produced and sustained by the formula of identity-based power sharing, which often meant sharing resources among the elites and their patronage networks. Finally, Iraq has already gone through a very violent process to recreate a new socio-political order with a dominant coalition of state and non-state actors seeking to reconstruct the national community via a combination of coercion and negotiation, as was the case historically with most state formation processes. However, whether the state would further assert its authority and more clearly formulate its identity to be discernible from subnational and transnational solidarities depends not only on the factors just mentioned, but also on the paradigm through which state-society relations will be defined, which in my view is the main challenge facing not only Iraq, but most Middle Eastern countries. Thank you.